Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Tonight we have a fairly unusual mix of guests. Uh, our first guest, Harvey Solar, is uh, with us to talk about a subject we seldom think about until, A, either there's a disaster, or, two, we're moving into a new area. But it's, uh, what do they call it, HV? Uh, HVAC. Thank you, Harvey. Sure. Uh, but as as we uh, always do with our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, personally before we get into uh, talking about how uh, the ways of saving money and uh, insuring against disaster. Well, I was never intended to go into this industry. I actually was uh, heading towards law school, and uh, my family had been in the business since 1949, and I took it to a different level. Um, I really enjoyed very, you know, I enjoyed being in the business with my father and uh, my family, and it's. Uh, I found it exciting. It's a very different uh, thing, and, and every day is different. Technology has changed so rapidly. It's. It's. Uh, every day is a brand new day, and that's why I enjoy it so much. What's the name of your company? Name of my company is Airdex, A I R D E X, and uh, I've been doing this now uh, since I'm 15 years old. Even though I was going to school and college at the same time. But every spare moment, uh, I was involved with the business and the industry, so uh, it's been a while. Well, part of the reason you're on this program is you are recognized as one of the um, more uh, uh, expert of experts in this field. And the reason we invited you on was to talk about uh, energy, uh, circulation, air conditioning, are important, but oftentimes seldom really uh, analyzed by small businesses. So I'm going to leave the uh, floor open to you and tell tell us some of the things that uh, a small business should consider in order to get more value from from their, uh, what do you say, HVAC? HVAC, that's correct. Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Well, Today, with with uh, a lot of the small businesses and stuff like that, people are concerned about uh, indoor air quality. As far as making sure that uh, you know, with with airborne diseases and things like that, that they're taking care of this system. So cleanliness is a is a really critical part as far as making sure filters are clean and that the machines are uh, properly maintained. And with technology today, there's the new thermostats, which are just I, I'm not going to tout any particular brand thermostat that's on the market today. 
But uh, with the Internet thermostats that are available today where people keep an eye on the comfort levels in their businesses and their homes, uh, it's, it's just an amazing thing. And uh, I always try to use a lot of these products myself first to see if they're really worth anything. And uh, I'm impressed. I have it in my own home, in my own business, and it saves me money. I think it's a, it's a great thing. And it also, with the new thermostats, there are ways of measuring the air quality as well, which is, uh, you know, with, with sick building syndromes and stuff like that, I, I think it's great stuff. Well, Harvey, let me go back a minute. Um, someone told me that if you the, the more you clean your systems, whether they're heating, uh, air conditioning, et cetera, uh, the more efficient they run. Was he correct? He is absolutely correct. Uh, the biggest enemy of any system, whether it be a heating system or an air conditioning system, is dirt. I mean, uh, it, it, it gets airborne, it goes into the equipment, it starts blocking up coils and things of that nature. It blocks up heating systems, and it can be a danger factor also, uh, especially with heating systems, because it could create a situation where you get carbon monoxide. And I am a big advocate of telling people whether they go to a Home Depot or any supply house and making sure that they have carbon monoxide detectors in every floor of their home because things like that do happen. If something gets blocked up from dirt or something is, is like that, it's a dangerous situation. I'm a small business owner. Um, what are some of the things that I can do besides what you mentioned to reduce costs? Let's say, let's talk first about what they can do with existing systems uh, and then uh, what do you recommend uh, uh, small businesses do uh, in terms of new equipment? That's really a great question. As far as existing systems, again, uh, the basics never change. Uh, people should be constantly taking care of changing filters on a regular basis and making sure that uh, if their systems are uh, outside or anywhere near where, where a dirt buildup could happen, that they're kept clean. Uh, that's a, it's a very important thing as far as taking care of an existing system. And also, in, in a business, uh, setback thermostats or any kind of thermostat that will change the temperature when the system is not being used to a, to a certain point uh, over weekends or evenings, uh, that's a big energy savings. As far as new equipment goes, uh, the technology is, is actually become really incredible. Uh, uh, <laughs> I would never think that... Uh, Everything would be so computerized, but really today, you really need a knowledge, an IT knowledge of, uh, of the equipment today. But it's, it's smart thinking. It's absolutely smart thinking that saves a lot on your operational cost. Uh, these air conditioning systems actually monitor and know uh, occupancy of the building. It's able to change speeds as far as knowing that on a hot day you may need a little bit more cooling. But on a day where it's uh, 70s or 80s, where it's really just not that, that uncomfortable, that the equipment will actually gear down to a lower speed, and uh, it's a big savings in, in operation as far as power bills go, and comfort. Comfort's a critical thing today in businesses. Well, um, in New Jersey and in other states, they tout about these uh, energy efficiency in terms, but uh, are there really advantages to uh, becoming part of, of some of these energy efficient uh, where you uh, turn in old equipment for new and get credits, or or is that a myth? No, I'm definitely an advocate for that, uh, and I you know <laughs> I hate to say it, but you know the uh, the first cost uh, can be a little bit expensive, but uh, 
as I said, uh, everything that I tell somebody to do, I, I've always done myself. I always believe in trying it out myself. And uh, the new equipment that's out on the market is is really superior stuff. Uh, you know, you think about the days when uh, you had an old car, and you think about the gas mileage you got on an old car, and you think about the economy today that a car could, could get you 25, 35 or more. Uh, there really is a design on air conditioning and heating that really does fit the hybrid uh, nature and that it understands uh, based on temperature and people and I mean it, it just it just knows what to do at the right time and it's a, it's a big savings and I've seen a change in my home and my business uh, in my business also which I have to tell people which is critical if you have uh, zoning is a very important thing where uh, individual areas have their own thermostats to control because uh, everybody has a uh, a different body clock or a different body temperature point. Uh, I personally like my office cold, and I have a staff uh, of uh, of uh, men and women that are in my front office area that do my dispatch area, and they're constantly complaining, and they're able to adjust the temperature to what they like. So uh, the fact that my air conditioning system is able to change in different areas is also a cost savings as well. Well, let's go on to one of the other things that intrigued me about you. Um, we we face uh, well. Thankfully, the hurricane season seems to have passed without any um, major storms. But uh, how can one prepare for a disaster and recover from disasters, uh, natural or man-made? Um, do you have any ideas on that? Well, with Sandy and Irene that we had that hit, uh, it was it was very difficult for a lot of people in the state of New Jersey. Uh, Many people, you know, when we buy a, uh, a new television or a new appliance, we buy surge protection to protect that. And, and when Sandy and Irene hit, uh, our grid, our electrical grid system, really obviously failed in a lot of ways where uh, lights were flickering constantly. And any air conditioning and heating system that was operating during that time uh, would have been uh, devastated by that. And there was a lot of repair work that we were involved with, with, uh, with uh, Sandy and Irene that came through. So... They do make, and I do advocate, uh, anything that we install brand new, uh, surge protection that is designed for air conditioning and heating, that the minute the power starts to uh, either drop or surge, it will shut the equipment down until the, uh, the, the electrical grid stabilizes again. So this way it, it saves a lot of money. The initial cost of a, uh, of a surge protection for air conditioning and heating is really minuscule compared to what the repair would be. Well, are you saying that in the surges, the air conditioning systems uh, were damaged not by the storm but by the electrical surges uh, and flickering? That created more damage by far than the storm itself. You're absolutely correct, Don, what you're saying. See, I le uh, what I love about this program, I learn something new every every uh, uh, show. So... Uh, so you're saying if you invest in a, a new system, you also need to invest on on, on a specially designed surge system. Yes, I think it's again. You know, when you're talking about the amount of money that you're spending for brand new equipment, and uh, that that should give you good longevity. The cost of adding surge protection, which we absolutely put on every, you know, when we put a new system in. That's immediately figured as part of the project. We wouldn't even think of not putting it in. Uh, not only does it save the customer of any kind of uh, any situation going on where, where a storm can hit, but uh, 
even from our perspective, it, it, it's a form of life insurance. Uh, it, it's it's the best investment you can make. Well, what about if you have uh, older uh, equipment? Can you uh, can you install it now? Yes, that's a very good point. This is something that can be installed on any piece of equipment, no matter what the age is. It's it's a good investment to make. Uh, if the unit is, you know, once the unit reaches a certain age, and I always I always like to, you know, hit that that 15 year mark on a unit that's a 15 year old system. That's a gray area ready for a unit where you probably don't want to make too much expense anymore. Uh, that you should be really contemplating a brand new piece of equipment already. Uh, and I guess I hate to make the remark. I know the economy for a lot of people out there is not really wonderful, uh, so they may want to consider it. But again, that 15 year mark when you're dealing with equipment, whether it's uh, on a commercial building or you're dealing with a home, uh, it's starting to hit that area where they should be contemplating uh, looking to upgrade to a brand new piece of equipment already. Well, let's talk about for uh, a moment. Um, are there programs um, uh, related to that for financing, like small business loans, et cetera? Are there anything that you've run across that a small business owner uh, can look for for help? I know that the utilities, uh, depending on where you are in the state of New Jersey, do offer some sort of a rebate program depending on the efficiency of the equipment that you buy. And I do believe, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to sort of uh, skirt this a little bit, I know at one point I think the federal government was offering some sort of small uh, incentive also for a change in equipment as well. I'm not positive that's still, still in effect. I know that at one point there was somewhere, I think it was either $300 or $500, but I, I'm not positive that anymore, Don. But there are programs out there uh, that are available for rebates, uh, there are programs out there for financing for equipment as well that can be gotten. Well, let me ask you uh, this question. Um, how can a, uh, an individual a business owner uh, measure, uh, measure or uh, test that his or her equipment needs, uh, besides uh, obviously age, that they should bring somebody in to look at it to, to wring some savings from it. Well, what are there something some things they can do? Is there a checklist? Yes, there is. There absolutely is, and uh, you know what? Uh, I can actually put that up on a website for somebody to look at uh, for them to see. But there is a search. There is a definite uh, checklist. It's it's. I look at it as the equivalency of going to your doctor. You would not go to. You'd have you'd have to go to your doctor for a checkup on an annual basis. Uh, just to make sure that you're you're in good shape. You do blood tests. You make sure that there's nothing going on with your body. Same thing goes for air conditioning and heating. Uh, I am I'm, I'm more serious with the public about checking their heating systems uh, because heating systems can create uh, carbon monoxide. If there's something going on with their system that's defective and it's not being properly checked, and I would not I would not wait for that, especially this time of year. They want to bring in somebody that's a professional to make sure they're checking their heating system that comes in with a carbon monoxide testing device to make sure that the KISS system is working in a very clean and efficient fashion. Air conditioning, on the other hand, yes, there's things that can be done that should be done on an annual basis to check that. Uh, there are uh, amperage tests. There are megometer tests. There are uh, refrigerant pressure tests that should be done. Uh, there's a scope of things that should be gone through on any brand-new system. And... Uh, the funny thing is that uh, 
the state of New York, which I wish the state of New Jersey would adopt, has a program that is put up by a company called Kema, K-E-M-A, that uh, has a special device that we've used that will show you that the system is running uh, 100% up to uh, its capacity. But I cannot stress to the public out, especially this time of year, uh, how, how serious it is not to have a heating system checked because people die. People die from carbon monoxide poisoning, and uh, it, it's a very serious thing to take care of it. You sound very passionate about it. I am, because I, I, I've, 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 there are too many stories that I'm aware of. Uh, I hate to show my age, but we, uh, I don't know if people remember uh, Vito Garolitis uh, died in a carbon monoxide situation in a home on Long Island because the heating system was defective, wasn't checked. Uh, there, are, there are things out there you, you should do. Uh, you would not, not have your car checked for, for the winter operation or not change your oil. Uh, heating system is, is a very critical thing to be checked on an annual basis. Uh, and your website? If anybody looks at my website, it's uh, www.airdexinc.com, and uh, I am going to make sure that I put up a checklist for people to look at. I'll arrange for that so they could see uh, what should be done. Uh, but, uh, you know, air conditioning, if it doesn't work, if you break, unfortunately, in a business, uh, you're going to be hot. That, that's, that's the worst of it. But a heating system can create a fatal situation. No. Uh, Harvey, thank you for coming. I learned a lot in the warning. If someone wanted to call you direct, uh, is there a number? I'll give you uh, my number. is. Uh, we have an 800 number. I'll give you uh, is 1-800, the number 2, AIRDEX, uh, A-I-R-D-E-X, or they can call. Uh, we have a, a New Jersey number, which is 732-738-7444. And in New York City, we have a number also. We've been in New York City for a long time also. is 718-646-7200. Harvey, really uh, glad you came tonight. I I certainly learned a lot. And um, in the next couple of days, I'm going to check your uh, website and get that checklist down. I'll be happy to do it, Don. I'll be happy to do it. Uh, Again, it's a pleasure to be on your show, and I appreciate your time. Have a, have a good day, and have a good holiday. Thank you, Don. Thanks so much, and appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Just how dangerous is social networking? Use of websites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all the rage. But what are the downsides of this new technology? The incidents of bullying, stalking, harassment, and inappropriate content are increasing. Just how dangerous is it? What can you do to protect your child and yourself from it? Go to protectivecountermeasures.com for a free hour-long video on the dangers of social networking. That's protectivecountermeasures.com for your free hour-long video. Our next guest is Jonathan Barsade. He's CEO of Exactor, former tax attorney for Aiken Gumpen. And he's here to uh, help us uh, plan for that awful day when we have to pay 2014 taxes. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Good good evening, and thank you for having me. Uh, Jonathan, we start uh, off all of our guests by asking them to say a little bit about themselves personally before we talk about anything else. So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh 
Sure. No, thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO and the founder of Exactor. I'm a former uh, technology attorney and worked uh, with uh, at Aiken Gump. I had my own practice. Um, and while I was there, I worked a lot with, uh, with technology companies and with startups. And during that uh, time period, during the 90s, uh, as the Internet was building up, I sort of realized that uh, this area of the Internet, the transaction, definitely it's going to be a big market and sort of I believed in the market and sort of recognized uh, this area of taxation. It's going to be a big ticket item of sort of like how do you determine taxes in this in this environment and uh, to be able, and so uh, came up with the idea for Exactor to be able to provide a single uh, place solution for uh, t taxes, both uh, calculation and uh, a single stop automated solution for comp uh, calculating and uh, overall compliance with sales taxes. And so, what is it exactly does Exactor do? Boy, that was a mouthful. <laughs> Say that ten times. Uh, so it, uh, what we do is we provide a fully automated end-to-end -end solution for sales and use tax compliance. What that means is that we can interact and uh, connect at any point where a merchant might need uh, to calculate taxes in real time at the point of the transaction, if that is in the shopping cart or in their accounting programs, in the QuickBooks or the ERP systems. We calculate the taxes in real time and seamlessly, transparently, without slowing down the transaction. And then what we also do is at the back end, we'll take all the data and we'll provide a, um, and we'll actually generate and file the tax returns uh, on behalf of the seller. So effectively what we do is we, we're doing to sales tax what ADP and Paychex did to payroll processing 25 years ago. And so in essence you're saying, as you're taking in your um, various sales, uh, your various sales taxes, et cetera, um, you you kind of accumulate it, so at the end of the year, you don't have to start calculating all of that. Your city, state, et cetera, it's all done for you. Is that, well, is that correct? That is correct. The only place that I would uh, that I would update that is that I wish it was just uh, once a year. For many businesses, it, actually, this is a monthly task. They have to do it every month, um, and for the more fortunate, they might have to do it every quarter. So uh, uh, states and local jurisdictions, uh, they're very adamant in sort of in getting those tax returns filed frequently and the tax payments remitted as frequent as possible. Well, um, I hadn't realized that, but when you say it, then I, uh, then I say, well, that, that's logical. You mean you have to report to the state or the, uh, uh, all your taxes for that month, or that all the tax receipts? That is correct. Uh, typically, it's at the state. Most often, frequently, it's at the state level, but there are also many situations where it's actually at the local jurisdiction. And when you're talking about sales tax, what happens is that uh, the, the rule of thumb is that any government, um, part of the government's powers is to collect um, is is to collect sales taxes and. And no, no government basically foregoes that right. They, they practice it uh, religiously. So uh, you have in the United States alone, you have over 10,000 different taxing jurisdictions, starting from the state level, but drilling down also into the county, local jurisdictions, cities, and as well as also special jurisdictions. But, but correct me if I'm wrong. I thought uh, the internet was still essentially tax-free. That is 
uh, that is a very common uh, misperception. Um, when people talk about um, the freedom, uh, tax freedom on the internet, uh, really what the reference to, to is the what's known as the Tax Moratorium Act. The Tax Moratorium Act was an act that was created by uh, by Congress back in 2002 as the internet was taking off, and there was a lot of discussion at the time of what is the internet you know is it, it is it this new frontier it has no borders and and it was really sort of like a wild west and so what as we were introducing this new frontier uh, governments were starting to think okay well let's let's create all these new taxes and and they were starting to think of all, all sorts of new tax taxes that they could impose on on the internet and that uh, so for example um, that you had the bit rate taxes basically for uh, for transfer of information uh, you had many states that started to think about it well maybe it's, we should treat it like a utility and they were going to charge an access tax for just accessing the internet and what the government realized very quickly is that if states can start imposing these new taxes and um, it's really going to bring the internet to the screeching halt especially at the begin uh, at its at its early stages. So they passed what's known as the Tax Moratorium Act, and what that Moratorium Act said was that nobody can create new taxes, and they can only enforce existing taxes. And what happens is sales tax at the time, obviously, sales tax is not a new tax. It's an existing tax, and so, and, and it's never been treated as a new tax. So the Moratorium Act that people talk about is not, does not, has no power over sales tax. When people talk about sales tax on the internet, it's not because of the Moratorium Act. The, the common consensus is that sales tax definitely does apply to the internet. Where the issue is, is the state's ability to enforce their rules against companies and businesses that don't have what's known as nexus. In other words, don't have a presence in the state. So right. when it, and so and that goes back to a Supreme Court case, the Quill case back from '92, that said that if a business doesn't have a presence in the state, the state cannot enforce it. So enforce their rules against those businesses. And so um, so it's not an issue of that it's a tax-free zone, but it's just a question of do the states have the ability of enforcing their rules against out-of-state businesses? And then what you've been seeing it, um, in the last few years as the Internet has grown and the e-commerce environment has grown, um, states have become very innovative in their interpretation of that term presence. Because the question is, especially in this world of virtual world, what, what is a presence? So, you know, if you have a physical presence, such as a warehouse or an office, there's no, there's no doubt that, that it, it applies. But states have become more innovative. So, for example, if uh, somebody advertises in a state or directs their advertisements in a state, so the state will say, well, you're availing yourself uh, to doing business in the state. And then what happened in the last few years, um, you had situations uh, like New York, which passed back several years ago, what's known as the Amazon law. And what that law said, basically, was that uh, even though a business is not it doesn't have a presence in the state, but if you are allowing New York-based businesses to advertise on your website, that creates that creates the connection, the nexus uh, to the state. And um, and that effectively, obviously at the time, it was directed at Amazon, but uh, it's directed in general at e-commerce. That law has been appealed, and Amazon actually lost on appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court. And following New York, many, many states have sort of been following suit 
of creating these new um, creating these Amazon type laws because obviously the states are sort of want they obviously want to increase their scope of their ability to enforce their rules. So, so it's really an evolving question. So, uh, yeah, I apologize for the long-winded answer to your question of the internet being a tax-free zone. It's not really the case. What we're seeing, though, is that it's evolving, and and taxes do apply to the internet. It's just a question of being able to enforce the rules against the businesses. First off, it wasn't long-winded. It was extremely informative. It certainly informed me, and I'm sure our audience as well. I haven't heard it explained better. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, well we appreciate you you're coming on the program. Um, so, uh, if I may go a little further, because uh, uh, the nice thing about the, uh, uh, having this program is I learned so much, and I hope the audience does as well. So, basically, if I'm let's say like if I'm selling sunglasses, and I uh, sell a pair to San Jose. Uh, California, uh, the taxes may be different than if I sell the same uh, glasses and the same at the same price in, say, Little Rock, Arkansas. Would, and, and what you do, if I understand correctly, is automatically uh, um, add the appropriate tax and, and, more importantly, collect that information so that at the end of the year or the end of the month, in this case, which is not, another thing I learned. Um, uh, uh, the company knows what to remit to Little Rock and what to re remit to San Jose. Am I, is that in a nutshell? That's in a nutshell, and let me even take it uh, down even a further level for you. Please. Uh, because you're talking about the sale of the same product to di two different states, uh, and definitely different states are going to uh, tax different products differently. But we might even uh, there might even be situations where what we think is the same product is actually going to receive two different tax treatments even in the same state. And what do I mean by that is that you might, uh, for example, purchase software and download it through the internet, and it will have received and it will have one type of uh, tax treatment. And then you might go and purchase the very same software, the same ship to, same ship from. In other words, all the Everything in the transaction are ide is identical. The only difference is that instead of downloading it, it gets delivered to you on a DVD. And that will be a whole different tax treatment because some states will say if it's delivered electronically, it's, a, it's considered to be an intangible good. It could be a service or whatever it is, and they'll tax it one way. And if it's delivered the same software, same functionality, but it's delivered on a, on a DVD, that's considered to be a tangible good, and they'll tax it differently. So uh, when you look at when you look at uh, tax sales tax rules, uh, the rules get to be very very uh, complex and convoluted, and and they differ state to state, lo local to local, as I mentioned, over ten different thousand different taxing jurisdictions, uh, and they all depend upon the ship to and the ship from and where the company is doing business. So it can it gets to be very very complex. Yeah, I can see that, and. Uh, um uh, we were just advising, uh, uh, I brought up sunglasses because we were just talking yesterday with a, sun manu a, sun, a sunglass manufacturer with some unique software so, um, lenses, uh, and uh, 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 one of the things he said was he was perplexed by the, the tax treatments uh, he was uh, um, getting, and uh, I said I, I have someone uh, coming tomorrow. 
uh, to talk about it. So I'm gonna. Uh, what's in it? What's your site again? Exactor. www.exactor. That's e x a c t o r. dot com. I'm writing it down for him. Uh, oh, I hope you. our audience is hearing it as well. Um, uh, how do you collect all this information? If there are 10,000 different uh, tax jurisdictions, how do you collect it all? Uh, well, that's essentially what the company is all about. I mean, our, what Exactor does is focuses entirely just on sales and use taxes in the United States as well as also international. And uh, what we do is uh, we utilize a lot of technology to be able to automate as much as possible the processes. So there, uh, there's a lot of data out there that we can collect uh, utilizing um, advanced technologies uh, that we have as well as also utilizing uh, public, uh, open uh, open resources as well as also uh, we've got a team of researchers that they just do it the old-fashioned way uh, to so, uh, to supplement the data and which might include researching um, uh, as well as also uh, literally telephoning as uh, telephoning to local jurisdictions uh, to get uh, con uh, data confirmation so it's really a matrix of uh, different methodologies that are applied um, to sort of supplement um, all the different data sources. Well, um, well w one of the things that intrigued me is you had some ideas about uh, how to anticipate uh, paying taxes next year. Uh, can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Uh, one of the... One of the things that I would probably recommend to anyone, uh, and not just in sales tax, but in general, uh, I think this pertains to taxes, is the first and foremost is the concept of the auto automation. Um, it, it's interesting, when you look at the business environment today, uh, people will be using the most advanced technologies for different uh, parts of the business. If, you, if it's uh, for processing uh, orders, if it's, for if it's for their accounting systems, for processing payments. But when you're dealing with taxes, people are still using 20th century technology in a 20, 21st century environment. And many businesses will be using um, all type of old methodologies basically for tracking, if it's uh, tracking rates and calculating uh, the taxes manually. And they'll try to track all the different products and, uh, on, on their own, sort of thinking that uh, it's trying to track all the different rules. Even if it's in a single location and they'll do it manually, and they'll generate and file the tax returns manually. And because and, the bottom line is that nobody wants to deal with taxes. Uh, everyone basically, you know, nobody starts a business other than the tax business, obviously. Nobody goes into business to actually um, generate and file tax returns. And so it's one of those things that it's a necessary evil. Everybody deals with it because they have to, not because they want to. And they are using, and, and because of that, many other reasons, they really they don't want to invest, they don't want to learn, and sort of they, leave, they always leave it to the last minute. And if there's one sort of common theme across the board, I would say that's it. In, in, in today's day and age, there are technologies that are out there, uh, such as that that we provide, that are uh, that can automate the process and automate the process entirely from A to Z. I mean, we've got we've seen many situations where clients basically told us that we've cut down their their efforts down from 
two or three um, FTE weeks, uh, full-time employee weeks a month, down to maybe like one to two hours of that they need to dedicate. Um, and it's sort of like that it's like this magic that's behind the doors, basically, that just takes care of the taxes. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's you know we deal in sales and use taxes, but it's in general in taxes across the board. Is the biggest ticket item that I can tell people is utilize the technologies that are available out there to automate the process. Uh, it will both take away a big headache. It will um, release a lot of resources that uh, that you'll be able to then dedicate to more productive um, uh, efforts. Uh, it, and it will also basically ensure that you're in compliance. It will ensure that you are uh, filing the t tax returns accurately and in a timely way. I mean, um, another big ticket item that I also oftentimes notice, I can't tell you how many businesses uh, that come to us sign up for our business, and sort of their first sentence is, well, can you file also the tax returns for the last six months because I just never filed. And, you know, by using some of these technologies that can automate the processes for you, you're basically, you're not only buying um, lower costs, increased reliability, you're also effectively really buying a lot of peace of mind. Mm. Well, you know, the tax taxman always cometh, and uh, uh, anything you can do to, do you also help to uh, kind of identify where you could save on taxes? which uh, everybody in the world is interested in. Well, definitely, because what happens is that by um, by identifying the different items that you're being sold, by categorizing them, what happens is we calculate the taxes uh, accurately down to the, down to the down to the line item. And what that means is that effectively if you have any different item in your invoice that might uh, be entitled to some type of beneficial tax treatment, we'll be applying those rules in real time automatically. Good example for that, for example, is clothing. Many people. Um, what happens is that in many states, you might have uh, all sorts of different thresholds of uh, the clothing. For example, in New York, where clothing below any item that is less than $110 is tax-free. Um, so, or there might also be tax holidays where certain um, where certain um, during certain weekends in the year, uh, basically the state says, well, there are no taxes for any item that is sold during this during this uh, weekend. Unfortunately, those dates also change from year to year, and very frequently the state will send out the notice two to three weeks only before the, before the actual tax holiday. So many people actually even miss those events. So by utilizing these kind of technologies, uh, you're really assuring that you'll be um, benefiting from any beneficial tax treatment. If it's reduced rates, if it's thresholds, or if it's tax holidays, you'll be benefiting from them automatically. Well, that that alone is, is worth the, uh, listening to you. Uh, uh, Jonathan, again, your, your website? The website is www.exactor, that's E-S-X-A, C T O R dot com. Oh, um, I'd like you to come back in the new year and, and talk about um, about this uh, more because uh, I, I think you could have a, add a lot to our uh, uh, audience. I re your explanations are spot on and, more importantly, understandable. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. 
Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2HSA.com. That's 2HSA.com. Our guest tonight is Tom Nickham. He's president of an IT-based uh, company, but one of the reasons uh, we invited him on is because he has uh, an unusual side. Uh, I don't say venture, I say uh, uh, support or, or interesting, and I'll let him tell about it. Um, but the, uh, the main, main point about this is lessons learned. Tom Nickham, welcome to the pro- program. Uh, thank you, Don. Well, uh, first, Tom, we always ask our guests a little bit about themselves personally. So tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get into Ride Across America and uh, your company and everything else and the lessons you've learned. Sure. Well, uh, I've been uh, I've been in IT pretty much all my life. Uh, I have a Ph.D. in computer science from the University of Minnesota, and that uh, helped launch my career in in the computer industry. Uh, so I've been doing that for money, basically my whole life. We started Lancet Data Sciences, uh, four of us, about 17 years ago, and we've been helping customers and clients, most of whom are Fortune 500 type com- companies, uh, put together tools and systems to analyze very large volumes of data. Uh, for the last, uh, well, since since we were formed 17 years ago. So that's kind of our, our focus is on data and helping people analyze it. Um, a lot of large retailers, healthcare organizations, uh, marketing companies, they're, they're accumulating data rapidly. I'm sure everybody's read all the articles uh, about the, the increasing amounts of data being created, and, and we specialize in, in uh, helping people implement tools that, that allow them to gain some insight from all of that. But now uh, you're really on this program because you've learned some lessons uh, helping uh, 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 a charitable uh, adventure. Tell us about Ride Across America, your role, and how uh, our small business audience could learn something from it. Sure. Well, a couple of years ago, as so many many Americans need to do, I, I needed to lose some weight. And so I started out uh, cycling, and uh, I, I actually really enjoyed it, and I got a lot of weight off, and eventually I, I got into it enough where I signed up with a coach to help accelerate my capabilities. I'm uh, you know, middle-aged, uh, 57 years old now, uh, started cycling really when I was 55, and I wanted to, you know, Get the most out of the years I had left, uh, and 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 so I, I took on a coach, uh, that really helped, and as it turned out, my coach, who had been an athlete pretty much his entire life, was preparing to do a thing called Race Across America, and Race Across America is a long-standing event. It was started 32 years ago, and it is a cross-country bicycle race. Um, it starts somewhere in California every year and ends somewhere on the East Coast. 
the last few years it started near San Diego in Oceanside. It starts at the ocean. A lot of racers ritualistically dip their wheel in the Pacific Ocean, and it ends in Annapolis, Maryland, where if you're successful, you dip your wheel into the Atlantic at the end of the race. Um, it's a it's not like the Tour de France, which is ra- is called a stage race where they race a few hours every day and then stop, and they even have a few rest days. Um, it's longer than the Tour de France, and it takes less time. Uh, the maximum amount of time a racer is allowed is 12 days to to ride across the country. It's almost exactly 3,000 miles. Uh, if you were to add up all of the hill climbing involved, it's 170,000 vertical feet of climbing along the way. Obviously, there are descents there too, but the descents never feel as good as the as the climbing hurts, I guess. So bike, biking events are typically classified in distance and climbing. So 3,000 miles, 170,000 feet of climbing, and you have 12 days maximum to do it. The winner this year finished in... Uh, seven days, 15 hours. It was a a new uh, record for the event. There's a strong component of of charitable giving. Almost every racer or team declares a charity that they're working for, and uh, uh, the racer I was was, uh, working with, Bob McEnany, he uh, worked for the Minnesota Military Family Foundation, and we raised, I believe, about $20,000 for them. Um, the race itself is quite expensive for the racers to put on. Um, I believe uh, typically it costs about $25,000 to participate. Racer needs a crew. Uh, we had a crew of eight people, three vehicles that supported Bob because he was going 22 hours a day, so we needed shifts of crew members to keep him going. Uh, it's a requirement of the race that, that the cyclists be followed by a car to sort of protect them from traffic because you're out in the real world. And so we had an RV and two vehicles, and I was asked by Bob to be his crew chief. So um, I learned a lot about running a very intense uh, a very intense endeavor with a very short-term goal uh, over the course of our, uh, our 10 days. Well, that's truly amazing. He, he crossed the country on a bicycle in about 11, uh, seven days, did you say? The winner, uh, who was from Austria, the race attracts a lot of people from Europe. Um, there were also people from Korea this year, so it's starting to edge into the a- Asia markets as well. Uh, the winner from Austria did it in seven days, 15 hours, and set a new record. He set the record last year at seven days, 22 hours. <laughs> so, it, 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 and you encounter... And I think parallel to business, I mean, you encounter everything along the way. There's uh, the scorching deserts of Arizona, where the temperatures can be 115 degrees. There's the the rocky mountains where you have to climb passes that are uh, at 12,000 feet. And obviously, we started at sea level. And in parts of California, we're actually uh, near the Salton Sea. We're below sea level, 200 feet below sea level to 12,000 feet above sea level. There's the endless plains of Kansas and Missouri and and Ohio and and so on. So um, there's high humidity, there's high heat, there's cold over the mountain passes, there's wind, there's rain. Pretty much everything you can possibly encounter, uh, you you get in in 7 to 12 days. Well, I have a question. Are you contemplating doing it? 
Uh, at this time, I am not. I, I do enjoy um, longer events, by which I classify as six to twelve hours. I'm currently training for a couple of six and twelve hour uh, races. Um, training for the race across America is typically a, a multi-year type of, of affair, and the preparation, the expense, and the crew. Uh, I, I think one of the hardest things was simply finding eight people that could dedicate two solid weeks, not to mention preparation time, uh, but two weeks uh, off of work, away from family, and basically worked 24 hours a day uh, during that period. That, that's, a, that's a hard group of people to find. <laughs> well, what is a typical volunteer uh, uh, in your crew, for instance? What were they like? Well, um, typical, ah, boy, we had a we had a, a bike mechanic who uh, in Minneapolis he works for a co-op uh, bike shop, and he was able, you know, because it's a co-op, he was kind of able to manage his own schedule and could take two weeks off to to do support, and he felt that this was a great adventure. We had a young man who had just graduated from chiropractic school and was just getting ready to start his practice, and his specialty is going to be sports sports uh, chiropractic. So he, he wanted to come along to uh, use his skills to assist, but also he just happened to be right in between graduating from school and starting his practice. We had a, we had a woman who, uh, I guess more, more or less a housewife, but also a strong cyclist, and her daughter was off to college, so she had the time. And and then we had, you know, other people that were able to take take their whole vacation and, and use it for this endeavor because they a believed in Bob, or b believed in the the charity work, or c did it in the spirit of adventure. That's really terrific. So, what lessons do you learn that uh, our audience, which is made up primarily of small business uh, leaders, uh, what did you learn from that that you you thought might be of use to them? Well, I think the big thing is you know um, succeed or fail. There's a lot a lot you can do and a lot you can learn uh, from from the effort um, if you if you really focus on it. We I would say a couple couple quick lessons that came to mind. There's never enough time um, when you're when you're in the thick of things. We were working 24 hours a day. It seems like we had enough people. We had eight people. We were supporting one guy. But there were just so many things to do, from food preparation to scouting the weather ahead to figuring out where we were going to uh, rest for the night to preparing um, you know, special drinks and different things for Bob while he was on the bike to calling in status reports to race headquarters, constant motion, very again, very much like an entrepreneurial business, right? There's just always things coming at you, and I think learning to focus on what's important um, rather than the next thing it, it's really critical, especially for the for the crew chief or the CEO. Um, I think a couple places where I could have done better was more delegation. Um, we had a we had a couple surprise events. Uh, we had um, one of the folks that was supposed to be one of my strong lieutenants uh, sprained his ankle really badly the day before the event, so he just couldn't make it, was not allowed by his doctor to travel. So I lost my right-hand guy 
basically the day before the event. There simply wasn't any time to recruit anybody else. So we had to go into the event, short a manager, if you will, and that, that, that affected the workload because that, a lot of that fell back on me. So delegating, preparing, uh, maybe I uh, could have had a better plan in place for uh, the, the possibility of someone dropping out that was a, a key person. Um, there was budgeting uh, and, and just keeping everybody happy. And, and I think probably the biggest lesson I learned was team integration. We ended up having two different teams, essentially, two sub-teams, a night crew and a day crew. So we divided up the work that way. <clears throat> and what happened was they, they obviously had to share everything. They were in a, a follow vehicle behind Bob. So one crew would, would get done with their shift, the, they would exchange vehicles, and the new crew would get in the follow vehicle and so on. And because, again, there was so much time devoted to the event itself, we really didn't have enough time in advance to integrate the crews, integrate the team. And we had what in retrospect was probably a predictable result, which was the crews ended up being at odds with each other. Uh, you left the vehicle a mess. You didn't change over fast enough. And, and the crews, they didn't have to work together that much because they were completely separate, but they ended up actually disliking each other quite a bit because they had never built the relationships ahead of time. And because we had drawn people from many different places, uh, because we had to take people that, again, could take this two-week period off, they didn't know each other very well ahead of time. And so I would have spent a lot more time on building those interpersonal relationships of my team prior to the event, and we could have eliminated a lot of friction during the event. And I think it's easy to... For, for a small business owner to try to compartmentalize their teams, it's certainly easier to manage that I've got these guys over here doing this and I've got these gals over here doing that, and they don't really need to know much about each other. And, and I think what you find is they end up, they end up at odds with each other over, over nothing, really, just because they don't know each other and they, they just they didn't have no relationship whatsoever. So I think that, that was my biggest lesson was making sure that, that, that separate teams are still integrated and have interpersonal relationships prior to the beginning of a big project. Huge. Um, and then being, I think, you know, again, every entrepreneur probably already knows this, being ready to be flexible, being ready to seize opportunities when they occur, being ready to deal with problems. We had so many different problems that cropped up that were... Uh, predictable in the sense that we knew we were going to have problems, we just didn't know what they were going to be. So, for example, saddle sores. It's almost a guarantee that after some time, when you spend 10 straight days on a bike, you're going to have some kind of a saddle sore. It's just, you know. But we, you don't know when it's going to happen, and you don't know exactly how you're going to treat it. We ended up uh, having to FedEx medicine in, uh, we had people uh, helping us uh, source the medicine, getting it to FedEx. We had to we had to take people and get off the route and go pick up the medicine at FedEx. We had to do emergency shoe repairs and uh, you know blister fixes and different padding. 
again, the, these are events where the unexpected is guaranteed to happen because the human body breaks down differently for everybody. So we just had to we had to be super flexible and ready to respond to these different events. And we did a pretty good job there, a pretty good job. I think if we were to do it again, we'd be even more prepared because we've seen it once. But when you're only doing something one time, be, just being ready to be flexible uh, is, is really a good attitude to have. Well, um, you run a company with over 140 people uh, separated in, in, here in the United States and in India. Um, compare, comparing the two, your, your role um, with a relatively bigger company with this small thing, what do you see are the differences, and have, have you learned uh, something that will apply to your bigger company? Um, I guess the main question is, do you see the differences between a small company and a big company and how it's managed? Sure. Well, I mean, the big thing between Race Across America and, and our company is, is Race Across America, is a, it, it has a fixed end point. You you have a, you have a, a a deadline, you and once that deadline is passed, there there's there's nothing beyond it. There you know I mean if you if you goof something up and you take longer than the deadline, no one gives you an extension. Uh, no, there's no excuses. The the deadline passes, the race is over, and you're done. Um, uh, and you 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 get what you get. Uh, real life is a little is typically more flexible than that. Even when there's deadlines, they they can. Typically, be negotiated. Typically, there's some shared um, interest around the deadline. Uh, there's some shared responsibility over why the deadline isn't isn't getting there, uh, or the work isn't progressing uh, fast enough. Uh, so, uh, things are a little bit more negotiable. I think the race uh, the race event type thing is a little bit more a uh, little bit less realistic, um, a little bit less like real life. Um, that said, um, you know sometimes it's better to treat things pretty pretty black and white in business as much as you can up until the point where you have to switch into to a more negotiated mode. But it's good to really have the ability anyway to push hard and and get something done. Your customers certainly will will appreciate bringing things in on deadline if, if it's at all possible. Um, I think too just the time factors. Um, in, in business, you're dealing with people that you're paying, and and you have you have a good you have some reason to expect um, a certain level of performance in in something like the race across America. We're dealing with all volunteers. Uh, you can't really can't really order people around. They're there because they want to be, and if things get too too crazy, they can leave if they don't want to be there anymore. I mean the same is true with business, but in general, people don't just stomp off the job, you know, on a, on a whim. There'll be some some transition time and so on. So, the race across America was was a very fixed amount of time, a very intense, crazy uh, time. Uh, business tends to be a little bit more long term, I would say, and you have a little bit more ability to recover from some things. And a little bit more ability to work with people who uh, want to be there. They're being paid to be there, and they're being paid for a certain level of performance. In, in a volunteer situation, you kind of have to work with what you're given. 
uh, and and make the best of it. Um, the name of your company? Lancet Data Sciences. Can you spell it out for our audience in the website? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, Lancet is L-A-N-C-E-T and Data Sciences, and that's the website as well, lancetdatasciences.com. Uh, any final thoughts you'd have for our small business? Well, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, would you do it again as a crew chief or participating? I know that's a tough question. Yeah, well, well here I have sort of a, I guess maybe a slightly odd answer. I wouldn't do it again for the first time, if that makes <laughs> sense. Uh, uh, I, I would do I would do it again because now I have some experience. I think um, I bit I think it was a bit much to be the crew chief on my first try, especially given that most of most of our crew were were uh, you know new at, at this as well. So it was a little bit tricky. Not knowing, kind of going in, not knowing anything, and expected and, and expecting to, you know, formulate the strategy, the management, the, the details, etc. We did a pretty good job, uh, but uh, doing it a second time would be a heck of a lot easier. I can tell you that, and I think that's that's true of just about anything. Uh, it's a very, it's the race is much more complicated than you can even imagine. Uh, there's strategy, there's logistics, there's finance, there's there's crew management, there's personality management, there's sleep deprivation. Very very complicated. And again, it's in a, it's in a short period of time. At least the actual race itself. We actually spent almost a year ahead of time preparing, and frankly, a year wasn't enough. Uh, <laughs> but but ha- doing it again, you know, with all the notes and different things, it would be a lot easier the second time. So I'm actually. Um, considering uh, offering myself up as a crew member for next year, um, or if not for that race, uh, um, you know there are similar races around the world. In fact, there's one just finishing right now. I was watching on the internet this morning called the Race Around Ireland. Oh boy! And uh, and they're just rolling into Dublin uh, right now. So <clears throat> uh, that was about 2,500 kilometers. So it's a bit bit shorter than the race across America, as you might imagine, but. Uh, actually quite hilly, and, and the weather can be very intense over there. Um, you know, you describe it uh, when you said about uh, uh, jumping off and uh, uh, not anticipating things, et cetera, but it's, it's like an, uh, uh, someone who starts a small, a small business. They jump off a cliff hoping somebody has built a uh, swimming pool before they land. Absolutely, I think I think we all know that to be an entrepreneur uh, and to start a business requires uh, a lot of optimism, a, a lot of leaps of faith. Uh, we all know the statistics of how many businesses make it and don't, and uh, we do it anyway. So, uh, you know, it, it's not too dissimilar. Uh, the, the success rate for Race Across America for solo racers is only 50%. Only 50% of people actually actually finish the race. So it, it requires the same kind of optimism. Well, I admire them and I admire you. And uh, we're really glad you came to, today to talk to us. Uh, and we wish you much success. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, and we'll, 
We'll be talking to you again soon, I hope. I hope so, too. Have a great day. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.